Hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that you will turn in them to Colossians chapter 1. Well, one of my favorite Christmas movies is White Christmas. Any of you join me on that? (laughs) I actually heard someone go, woo. White Christmas is one of my favorite. It feels very much like Christmas has started once we are watching that one. Um, However, as much as our family enjoyed it and as much as I enjoyed it, I also remember growing up about how, remember growing up that we would joke about how unrealistic it is for characters in a story to just randomly start breaking out into song. We still watched it and still enjoyed it, and we watched other musicals as well. But it's not our normal everyday practice to just be going about our business with whatever it is that we're doing and then decide to start singing a song about it. I don't know about you, but I don't do that. Like, I don't think at all. But, you know, the Apostle Paul is actually doing something kind of like this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, which Holly just read for us a moment ago. These verses are written in a poetic and even rhythmical prose in its original Greek, which is obviously lost on us a bit in our English, but it is there. And some scholars suggest that this was this text in verses 15 through 20 was a text that would have also been used in early hymnody. And it's in this text used in antiquity as a hymn in the church that I am identifying our third call this Advent regarding the supremacy of Christ. Now, if this is your first week, either watching on the stream or here with us in person, the last two Sundays we've been looking at a a four-part series for our Advent season that we as elders prayerfully hope will help us keep Christ at the center of our hearts and our thoughts and our words and actions this Christmas, this Advent season. The first week we looked at a call to listen to Christ as the Father spoke from a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration to listen to him. The second call was the call last week to embrace Christ, to acknowledge who he is and embrace him as he said in John chapter 8, I am. Excuse me, in Luke chapter 8. First one was John, second one was Luke. At least I think so. If I got it mixed up, forgive me. This week, our passage is in Colossians, and it is one of the pinnacle passages of the New Testament regarding Christ. If you want to start talking Christology or the doctrine of Christ, Colossians 1 is one of the places you're going to have to go. You might even see in your copy of the Bible a heading just over this section of the scriptures, something like the preeminence of Christ. Perhaps you see one in front of you right now. And that's because it's in this section that the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter to a first century Christian church in Asia Minor, now modern day Turkey, writes in these few verses and a few more that follow this quintessential and classic expression of what exactly it is about Jesus that makes him so important. In fact, as Holly already read for us, you see in verse 18 at the very end, this word, preeminent in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. If you were to look up the word preeminent in a modern dictionary, you would see something along the lines of 
surpassing all others. And you'd see synonyms that include greatest, leading, foremost, best, finest, chief, outstanding, excellent, distinguished, prominent, eminent, important, top, renowned, celebrated, illustrious, supreme. Getting the picture? This is an attempt, that is an attempt at giving us the idea of what it means to be preeminent as Christ is described here. Now, this is certainly not the only place to consider the amazing truths about the person and work of Jesus, but it is one of the best. It is uh, sort of the classic go-to passage, so I wanted to take a look at it today for this third in our Advent series where we are calling ourselves to notice and observe and consider the supremacy of Christ, and this morning particularly to focus on Christ. Now, this passage comes after and is connected to thanksgiving words that Paul began to express to God for God's work in the Colossian church. You can see that in the verses leading up to verse 15. And then the first word in verse 15 is this pronoun, he. Well, who is the he that he's talking about? If you just look back a couple of verses, the he that he's talking about is the beloved son of God right at the end of verse 13. God has moved his people from the losing side, from darkness to the kingdom of his son, in whom, verse 14, we have redemption. So we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins in his beloved son, the son of God, Jesus. Then verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And so it's Jesus that Paul is clearly speaking of in this hymn, this song of praise, and as we consider a call to focus on Christ this simple, let's just, this Christmas, let's keep it simple, boy, I do that a lot, and consider two aspects of Jesus in this passage that we can focus on. The first is who he is, and the second is what he has done. So let's begin by focusing on who he is, this call to focus on who he is in verses 15 through 19. In your in the ESV, if you're using an ESV, you see he is, and then that he is, uh, there are listed after that six, six times, six descriptions of who he is. I'm getting a slide change error on my app, so I'm just going to use the clicker here. There we go. Who he is, six descriptions of who he is. The first is that he is God's perfect image. See that in the beginning of verse 15. It refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Kind of reminds me of what John said in his gospel in John 1.18, where he said, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. In other words, Jesus makes known, he displays, he perfectly images the invisible God, the God who is invisible, who cannot be seen. And there were certainly flashes of God seen by some of his servants before the advent of Jesus, but when he came, he perfectly displayed the image of God. You see, mankind, Adam and Eve, displayed the image of God as the climax of creation, if you will, but then they sinned, and creation was therefore marred. This image of God was marred, or you could say damaged, I suppose. 
But Jesus' redemption of the human race included his reversal of the failure of the first man by displaying God's image perfectly. He did what Adam and Eve failed to do. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Exact. It can't be any more clearly put than that. Jesus is the ultimate image bearer of God. Adam and everyone after him certainly do bear God's image, but because of sin, it is marred. But there's nothing marred about the image of God in Jesus. Mankind failed to image God, but Jesus did not. He is God's perfect image. Second part of verse 15 says that he is Lord over all. The way that it puts it is that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now that phrase could be a little bit confusing. What was Paul saying when he said that Jesus was the firstborn of creation? Is he saying that Jesus was the first one to be created? That Jesus is a created one? Well, if you think about it, and if you do some study, you'll know that it can't mean that for at least a few reasons. The first of which is that nowhere else in Paul's writings do you ever get the impression that he is convinced of this and in fact says the opposite including in this passage. That's the second one. This very passage would contradict such a conclusion in just a moment, which we'll see here. But third, the word itself doesn't even mean that. The word here for firstborn is the idea, carries the idea of rank and importance, not physical birth in this context. Because you see, the firstborn in that society, the society in which this was written, was the firstborn was the one with the most honor, It was the one who inherited the place of the father. He had the prime of place, you might say. And so what we actually have here is a phrase, a word that Paul is using, and this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, that emphasizes the truth that the preexistent, not created, son of God is the Lord above all, over all, over all creation, the heir of all things, actually, the author of Hebrews says. So he is the one with prime place, the one with the most honor. He is the Lord over all. And here's why I say that this passage says he can't have been created. Well, it's right there in the next verse. In verse 16, we also see that he is the sovereign creator. Here's why he can't have been created. He's the creator. And here, Paul specifically lists not trees, Not birds, mountains, and oceans, but what? Verse 16. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So not trees, birds, mountains, and oceans, but thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So of the millions of things that Paul could list that he created, he chooses to list these. Interestingly, Paul also refers to rulers and authorities in other writings, but almost always negatively as a reference to the forces of darkness in this world that Christians wrestle against. And so I think Paul is saying something pretty amazing by using this list here. He is saying that Jesus created everything including the powers of evil in the world 
trees and birds too. Yes, all things means all things. But it really does mean all things, not just the things that we're most comfortable and used to hearing that he created. But why would he list these specifically? Well, I think at least part of his reasoning is to show the total sovereignty of Christ over everything that has been created. At the end of verse 16, it says all things were created through him and for him. So they were created by Christ and they were created for Christ so that all of it would glorify Christ. Even knowing everything about what everything would become, everything was created by Christ for the glory of Christ. Now, if you were to study this whole letter, you would see that some of the Colossians were evidently interested in the worship of angels. That's listed in chapter 2, verse 18. We won't really go into that right now. But they were evidently interested in the worship of angels as part of the way to God. And I think that's important to note here because when you know the context, you understand that what Paul is saying here is that everything, including those angels that you apparently think are more important than they are, were created by Christ, were created for Christ. And so perhaps part of what Paul is saying is angels don't deserve your worship. The one who made them does. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So in this letter, Paul was seeking to warn against beliefs, traditions, practices that did not cherish Christ supremely over everything else. Because, my friends, when you don't embrace Christ supremely, you are easily swept away by falsehood, as the Colossians were. But when you do see Christ as supreme, and when you acknowledge his supremacy, and when your life is in sync with the truth that he is supreme, you are then plugged into reality, and you're safe, and you're able to interact and engage with the trials and challenges that may be related to evil and its powers and influences in this world. And so when Christians hear about the presence and power and influence of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, in particular those that are opposed to God, Christians can and should know that because Jesus has all authority over them, they cannot do anything without his ultimate permission, because he is the sovereign creator. Verse 17 also tells us that he is the mighty sustainer. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, when creation was created, God, through Christ, did not just sort of set it and forget it. He didn't make everything and then just sort of spin it out there to see what would happen next. No, everything ever made has been and is and will forever be held by his power. Have you ever thought about just the minor details of creation and how everything works, how some minor adjustment in, in things that I don't even begin to understand 
about planets and stars and moons and their placements being out of whack by just a, a minuscule fraction and things are all out of whack. And with sickness going around, we know one little bug or even one little symptom that doesn't really totally wipe us out, but we can just get thrown off. Changes in pressures and temperatures in the weather lead to hurricanes, tornadoes, blizzards, huge temperature drops. I saw it's supposed to be negative one, I think, on Thursday. Things are, <laughs> I saw people go, oh boy. <laughs> Little details like that are under the control of God. We kind of like to do the whole set it and forget it thing. Sometimes we just want to do the bare minimum of whatever we're responsible for so that we can't be thought of as negligent. Okay, I did my part. Maybe that's it's all the energy or desire I have for right now. We could do that with our homes. We could do that with ministry. We can do that at our jobs, parenting our kids, whatever it might be. It's actually a very bad habit in ordinary life to just set and forget and not remain invested in things. But that is not how Jesus runs the universe. By him all things hold together. He remains intimately, intricately invested in everything that is happening in creation. He's the one who holds it all together. He is not just the sovereign over creation at the beginning. He is involved with it every moment of every day. In him, all things hold together. We also see in verse 18 that he is the great Savior. The way Paul puts it is this, in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now this one bleeds over into our second focus, which is coming in just a minute, where we're focusing on who he is first and then focusing on what he's done second. This one bleeds over into that what he has done, just as much as it is part of who he is, and we'll see that in just a moment, but for now, just consider these two phrases in verse 18, that he is the head of the church, and that he is the firstborn from the dead. There is so much here in this phrase about him being the head of the body, that is the church. What is the church? I remember this being part of my doctrinal examinations in in my internship, when I did a pastoral internship years ago at a church in South Carolina, I remember it being part of my ordination questioning. It remains a question that can be fun even to think about with people considering the doctrine of the church. What is the church? What makes a church a church? Well, in its simplest terms, the church is the gathering of the people of Christ. You could even just simply say the church is the people of Christ. But it is the people of Christ assembled. It is the people of Christ assembled regularly for worship, for teaching, for fellowship, for service, for encouragement, for edification and exhortation, and all the one another's that we read through this morning, all for the glory of Christ. And of course, there are many other specifics, and this is not a sermon on the doctrine of the church, but at its core, we must understand that the church is the people of Christ. It's not an event that happens in this building at 1030 every Sunday. It's not a building. There's a sense to which you don't go to church. You are the church. It's a people. 
But how does someone become part of the people of Christ is then a, a next logical question that would follow. Well, simply, the scriptures teach that we become part of the church by coming to Jesus in faith and repentance, believing in him as the only Savior and Lord. And so this gathering, this assembly of people who have been saved by grace for the glory of Christ apparently has a head, apparently has a leader, apparently has someone who's in charge, and it's Jesus, according to this text and others. He is the one who established it. He is the one who said to his disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But more than that, or I guess I shouldn't say more than that, in addition to that, he gave himself up for the church. He gave up his life to a torturous and unjust death at the hands of wicked men in order to redeem and reconcile the church, his people, the ones whom he loves. And so as Paul is listing in Colossians 1 these aspects of whom Jesus is, and he speaks of Jesus as the head of the church, he is certainly referring to his role as the leader of all of Christianity. But he is also referencing the great saving work that Jesus did to establish the church and which made him the head of the church. This work that Jesus did to save people into it and to keep them in it. But he also says that he is the firstborn from the dead. So here we have another instance of firstborn language. This one is a lot more clearly not referring to physical birth, because whereas verse 15 says the firstborn of all creation, verse 18 says the firstborn from the dead. And that phrase wouldn't really make any sense at all in reference to physical birth. And so what Paul is clearly saying in verse 18 is that Jesus is the first to be resurrected from the dead. Now, obviously, Jesus is not literally the first person in all of human history who was ever resurrected from the dead. This certainly happened through him in his ministry. We've seen it in other times as well. But there was something different about Jesus' resurrection. His was the prime resurrection in a different way. It was Jesus, not literally the first person in all of time to ever be going, going from physical death to alive again. But here, firstborn means something different. It implies that there would be more resurrections after his, that his would be the first of others like his. That's exactly what I think Paul is getting at here. That Jesus' resurrection goes before it sets up the resurrection of his people to follow him. And so his resurrection is first. It is the number one resurrection. It is the setting up of resurrection for all of his people. And friends, here is one of the most glorious parts of salvation for all who are united to Jesus through faith. It's this, brothers and sisters, one day, all those who are truly Christ's will be resurrected like he was. So hallelujah, Jesus is a great 
Savior. He is the head of the church. He is the one who gave himself up for it, established it, and sustains it as its good shepherd today. And he is the firstborn from the dead. He goes before the rest of us, establishing a resurrection that we will too participate in one day. It also says at the end of verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent. That he might be number one. That he might be foremost. That he might be supreme. And that leads us to verse 19. This might be my favorite one of these six descriptions of who Jesus is. It's that he is the fullness of God. Wow. What a massive, meaningful, and magnificent statement. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here we have one of the most beautiful and simultaneously mysterious and mind-bending aspects of all of theology, what theologians call the hypostatic union. You hear that, kids? The hypostatic union. See if you can remember that one. It simply refers to the union of two natures of Jesus, both human and divine, in the incarnation. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. It's also possible, likely even, that Paul is using this phrase in light of what appears to have been the heresy that the Colossians were dealing with in their church and in their time. It seems to have been some kind of blend of Jewish and pagan mysticism that taught that certain Supernatural intermediaries, such as angels in in verse 18 of chapter 2, were needed in order to get to God. And so part of what Paul's words right here about in Jesus all the fullness of God dwelling is doing is clearly refuting this and saying that Jesus is God's fullness. No other intermediary is needed, just Jesus. But you know, even just apart from any potential heresy that needed to be refuted just try to wrap your mind around this craziness i can't it's mind-blowing it's beautiful that jesus was and is a real skin and bone and blood middle eastern human being who also simultaneously was divine in his nature possessing in him the fullness of God. Wow. If that doesn't get you focused on who Christ is, I'm not sure what will because that will occupy you for a while. It'll bend your brain. It'll overflow your heart with amazement. It ought to move you to worship at the wonder and delight of who Christ is. And so this is who he is, my friends. This is the one whose birth we commemorate and celebrate at Christmas and all throughout Advent leading up to it. Manger scenes depict him often respectfully and reverently as a helpless baby. 
and indeed he was. We sang of it this morning. We meditate on it every year as we should. The wonder of him being a helpless baby who depended on his mother and his earthly father for care and instruction and guidance as he grew into manhood. But at the same time, he was the preeminent, preexisting, perfect image of God, Lord over all, sovereign creator, mighty sustainer, great savior, and the very fullness of God. That's worth more than anyone else that ever lived, who outshines the splendor and delight of every bit of nature that you could enjoy, every moment of entertainment you could engage in, every fancy gift that you could unwrap on Christmas morning. And so let me ask you this. Do you think that having a clearer, fuller, deeper and more invested understanding of these truths about who Jesus is might affect the way you celebrate Christmas this year? I know there's not much time left, but it can still affect the way we do things these next several days and into Christmas Day and the days that follow. Just a few ideas here. Husbands, dads, might who Jesus is lead us to make at least an attempt in our families in some kind of Jesus-focused, Advent-themed time of devotion to Christ together? All of us who are church members, might it lead us to really prioritize time with the church as we celebrate the birth of the head of the church? Church leaders, elders and deacons, a couple of them out sick today, maybe watching on the stream. Hope you guys are. Might it lead us to remember that every ministry task on our plates, every opportunity for the body to participate in life together, every single decision that we have before us at any given moment about anything in this church needs to be squarely centered and focused on him. Friends, might focusing on the person of Christ change even the very mechanics of the way that we celebrate Christmas? Perhaps pausing before the opening of gifts to give thanks. Perhaps dedicating each feast or party to the glory of Christ. Perhaps even taking a moment before watching a Christmas movie to thank the Lord for moments of lightness and entertainment. Perhaps looking for ways to guide and direct conversations that you're having about the holidays with coworkers and friends and neighbors and family members toward Jesus. Friends, the person of Christ is glorious. This baby boy born in an animal shelter to a young virgin mother and a poor carpenter father is the glorious fullness of God in human form. And of course, the person of Christ was here to do work. And much of it we've already referenced in the characteristics of his person, but as this second aspect of what to focus on Christ about this Christmas is this, focus on what he has done. Look at verse 20. Through him, that is, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There are three parts to his work described here, and I'm going to put them this way. First of all, 
He brings gospel reconciliation by making all things new through his sacrifice on the cross. Start with that first one. He brings gospel reconciliation. It says that it's through him that reconciliation takes place. And it's because of all the things that we just considered together a few minutes ago regarding his work to redeem a people for himself and unite them to himself through faith to be raised with him on the last day. And so friends... And I know I'm speaking to to many, perhaps even all of you who already know this, but it needs to be said. The greatest need that any of us has is to be reconciled to God. We have other needs that are important and God cares about them, but the greatest is to be reconciled to God, to have our built-in wiring, our originally created purpose and desires and longings to be fulfilled by the one thing, the person in whom those longings and purposes and desires were originally and always meant to be found. And so, if you want a great explanation and expression of this need for reconciliation that everyone has, you can just look at the verses after this passage in verses 21 through 22. This is who the Colossians were without Christ's reconciliation, and it's who we are apart from him as well. Let's just read them. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It takes great restraint for me to not dive into that. But through him, through Jesus Christ, reconciliation has come. So first, he brings gospel reconciliation How does he do this? By making all things new. Back in verse 20. To reconcile to himself all things. All things is what he's reconciling. All things is what's being changed, being restored, being brought back to the original newness that it was created for. Now, couple of questions that could come from the way that this is worded. First of all, does this indicate that the cross accomplished salvation for everyone and everyone will eventually all be saved and reconciled to God? Well, again, such a notion would not be consistent with other writings from the Apostle Paul or other scriptural writings. I think accurate explanation for this is this that reconciliation is going to take place in all things whether by the bowed or broken knees of everyone who has ever been and ever will be through acknowledging the glory of Christ because of the reconciling work he did on the cross in other words there will one day be complete harmony without sin and that will take place whether through the loving submission of those who embrace and follow him or through the buckling submission of those on whom he brings judgment forever. So who and what is the all things here? I think it's connected to what was revealed to John later in his revelation in one of the final passages of the whole Bible. I put it up on the screen for you. Verses 1 through 7 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice. Oh boy, that uh, wreath is in my way back there. So I'm going to stand out here because I don't have it on my notes. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so the final plan for all things is that they are being made new. No more brokenness, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, nothing bad ever again. That's where this is all headed, brothers and sisters. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to in Colossians 1.20. So, he is reconciling all things through the sacrifice of his on the cross to atone for sinners. This is why the cross is so important, my friends. Yes, Paul would also say that without the resurrection, none of this matters and we are most miserable but friends without the cross there is no reconciliation because scripture teaches us that sin must be punished because god is holy and it teaches us that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood for an atonement and it teaches us that the atoning sacrifice for sin needs to be spotless and it teaches us that without this atonement by a spotless sacrifice there is no reconciliation but what paul says here in verse 20 of Colossians 1, is that through Jesus, reconciliation has taken place. Peace has been made by the blood of his cross. And you know, friends, this reconciling work has always been God's plan. To call and set apart a holy people of his own. That was the case in the Old Testament. It was the case in the New Testament. It's the case now in our age. It will continue to be until he returns. He has set apart people for a relationship with him. He has brought about the reconciliation needed for it through Jesus dealing with sin on the cross. And he is continuing to call more and more people to himself, to supernaturally shape his people into full Christian maturity through his spirit and his word. And one day, like that passage in Revelation teaches us, he will fully and finally, ultimately, permanently bring about the reconciliation of all things on the final day when the church, of which he is the head, which he bought with his own blood, enjoys fully what it currently waits for, which is an eternity without sin, without suffering, and the truest and fullest joy, hope, peace, and love that we could ever imagine. So praise Jesus. He is the one true, great, reconciling Savior. That's what he has done. So what does all this mean then for us at Christmas? 
It means that Jesus is at the center of everything we do at Christmas. It means that he is the one that we focus on at Christmas. And it means that whenever he starts to get out of focus, or something else is becoming primary to us, sneakily creeping into our hearts, telling us that life is all about it instead of him, we need to cry out to God for help, possibly in repentance for idolatry if needed, and ask for grace to have our hearts recentered, refocusing our sight and looking to Jesus more deliberately, more carefully, more clearly. And you know, if you're here today, or even listening on the stream on a recording later, and Christmas has never been about Jesus for you, or you've never actually put your faith in Him alone to reconcile you to God, the kind of reconciliation that Paul is talking about here, you can do that right now. You can do it in your seat in this room. You can do it wherever you're sitting, if you're listening to this later or if you're home watching right now. You can do it in a moment here. In just a couple minutes, we're going to take some time to pray quietly in our hearts. You can do it then. And I'd, of course, love to talk to you about it more afterwards if you'd like. There's others here who would love to talk to you about it too. But the news is this. You can be saved from sin. You can be reconciled to God. You can enjoy eternity in a relationship with him all because of Jesus. Simply through putting faith in him today. Now, if you think about it, and this is one of my my favorite and almost kind of frustrating things at Christmas time. If you think about it. Jesus is all over the place at Christmas, even for those who don't know him at all or don't even care about him if they if they do know about him. Just listen to the radio this time of year. You can turn on any popular station that would perhaps normally play music that is very much not honoring to God playing Hark the Herald Angels Sing Glory to the Newborn King. You'll hear those words on the radio this time of year. You'll hear it on in King Supers, and they'll play it whether or not Sandy makes them, right? Or look at what concerts are going on this time of year, or what plays or shows are being performed. I gotta tell you, it just blows my mind when I think about the number of people singing or listening to songs of praise to Jesus this time of year. It just always strikes me. And in fact, the choir that, that you know, I think, Kate and I work for, do this Every year at Christmas time. In fact, right after the service, we're heading to our final concert of this Christmas season today. And there are singers in our choir. There are audience members in the room. There are staff members in the organization that our choir is part of who aren't following Jesus, perhaps are diametrically opposed to him, and who sing his praise or sit and listen to it and enjoy it. In fact, just this last Wednesday night, our fellowship group went Christmas caroling. And there were people in the community who could hear us that loved our carols, but perhaps only because it was a seasonal tradition thing for them, not because of spiritual transformation inside them. And so what I'm saying is this, my friends, I'm just wrapping up with this, this thought. In a way, the focus is already very much on Jesus, whether you're on board with it or not. And so the question is, are you on board? And if you are on board, if I can use that metaphor, but you've sort of lost your focus or it's a little dimmer than it ought to be, are you willing to do what it takes to refocus 
And so may God help us as we seek to focus on Christ this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, all of our greatest desires, all of our biggest hopes and dreams are found in Christ alone. And this Christmas time, there are many hopes and desires that are, that are realized at times through things like a, a meal with friends or a, a gift from a loved one. But we need your help to focus on Christ. He is supreme. There is nothing, there is no one greater than him. And so both regarding who he is and what he has done, please help us to focus on Christ this day and certainly in these days that lead up to Christmas, but every day of our lives to follow. Let's take a few minutes and continue in prayer quietly in our hearts.